Some people find the Old Testament to be confusing, out of date, and essentially replaced by the New Testament. They are missing out. The Old Testament offers us a grand narrative that reveals God's work, God's purposes, and God's wisdom. Christopher J.H. Wright fits the pieces together and shows us the coherent whole. Using seven key sentences drawn straight from the Old Testament, he connects the dots and points us toward Jesus. Wright starts from the beginning, describing God's promises and covenants with his people and his mission to bless the world. At the end of this short survey, readers will clearly see God's faithfulness and love for his people and will understand how the Old Testament scriptures prepared for the identity and mission of Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright about his new book, The Old Testament in Seven Sentences, a small introduction to a vast topic. Dr. Wright, who earned his PhD from Cambridge, is International Ministries Director of the Langham Partnership, providing literature, scholarships, and preaching training for pastors in majority world churches and seminaries. He has written many books, including commentaries on Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel, as well as The Mission of God, Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, and Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. An ordained priest in the Church of England, Chris spent five years teaching the Old Testament at Union Biblical Seminary in India, and 13 years as academic dean and then principal of All Nation Christians College, an international training center for cross-cultural missions in England. He was chair of the Lausanne Theological Working Group from 2005 to 2011 and the chief architect of the Cape Town Commitment from the Third Lausanne Conference in 2011. Dr. Wright, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Sure. Well, uh, the accent, as some people might recognize, uh, is from Northern Ireland. That's where I grew up. I was a Belfast boy. And uh, I was very privileged, blessed by God, to have godly Christian parents who had been missionaries uh, before I was born. And so I grew up from a very early age knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and put my faith in him. I never felt specifically called to ordained pastoral ministry as, as a young person, but that became clear later on. I did my first degree in Cambridge in classics, that's in Latin and Greek, uh, and then shifted over to theology because I was interested in, in the Bible and wanted to go deeper. And after I'd got my first graduation, I thought, well, perhaps I should go a bit further. And so I ended up doing a PhD. And at that time, there was not much by way of study of the topic of Old Testament ethics, that is, um, how Christians should use the Old Testament for ethical and moral purposes. And so I I did my doctorate in that field back in the 1970s, and uh, and some of the books that you very kindly mentioned have arisen out of that. I think I became increasingly impressed with the Old Testament as, as continuously relevant, as, as the Bible of Jesus, as something we cannot simply dispense with because it's, it's part of the Scriptures, and the Apostle Paul tells us that all Scriptures are given by inspiration of God and are useful for us for training in righteousness. So I was always committed to thinking, yes, this, this stuff has to be relevant, it has to be authoritative. The question is, how do we do that? And, and that's, I suppose, been part of my life's passion, is, is trying to help Christians who obviously love Jesus, but they wouldn't be Christians at all, to understand something of the scriptures that Jesus himself loved and uh, come to respect them and understand and use them a bit more. So that's, that's a bit of the background, really, as to how I got to where I am today. 
Yeah, that is a great story and, and an incredible um, direction that your life has taken. So how did you come to write this particular book? What inspired this collection of sentences to describe the story of the Old Testament? Well, to be quite honest, it was an invitation from uh, InterVarsity Press. They, they had published a, a, a book, a small book with a similar title, Philosophy in Seven Sentences. Um, and the idea, I think, was, was from that book. They thought, well, maybe we could do this with other topics like the Old Testament, the New Testament, and some of the great theological issues. So they approached me and said, would, would you be interested in such a project? They wanted it to be a fairly basic level introduction but doing it in a way that would take some key moments, key sentences in the scriptures or the Old or the New Testament, and then use that as a kind of um, a kind of pinboard, you know, sort of hooks on which to hang uh, a basic introduction. So I, I sort of warmed to the idea. Um, I mean, I've written a, a, I wrote a very popular level introduction to the Bible many years ago. One of my earliest books was User's Guide to the Bible, long, long since out of print uh, with Lion books. And uh, and so I, I was quite keen to write at a fairly popular level because, you know, I, I don't like to just think that scholarship is just for the scholars and the academics. Um, if it's going to be any use, it has to be useful to the church. So I like I thought, well, I could do that. I could help people to find their way through the, the Old Testament a little bit, uh, give them something of the big picture, and then they can fill in the details for themselves. So I think that was the idea of the book, and I was happy to, to comply. Excellent. Yeah. And, and it's a great, great format. So let's dive right in. Your, your, first, sentence is, your first sentence begins um, with Genesis 1-1. And how do you trace the sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in the story of the Old Testament? Well, the thing is, uh, Jonathan, that it is the beginning of a story, isn't it? I mean, when, when you read in the beginning, you have to say, well, in the beginning of what? It's the beginning of the whole Bible narrative, which begins with creation and indeed ends with creation because the very closing chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21, 22, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, not a totally different one, but a new creation that has been restored and renovated and redeemed from the mess that we've made of, of the creation we were in. So it, it's the beginning. And it was, I thought, very important to put it in there because um, a lot of Christians, I, I fear, seem to have Bibles that have got a bit damaged that the first two chapters and the last two chapters have somehow got lopped off. They, they know all about sin, uh, Genesis 3, and uh, they know all about the Day of Judgment and Revelation 19:20 around there. Um, and they know about, of course, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of the story who can solve our sin problem and keep us safe from the Day of Judgment. But somehow they've lost where the Bible begins and where the Bible ends. It begins with creation. It ends with creation. And Paul tells us in Ephesians that God's ultimate plan and purpose, he says in Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10, is to bring all things in heaven and earth, the whole of creation, into unity under the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's, God's mission, God's purpose is creation-wide. So we, I sort of, we have to start there, really. Uh, it's the platform on which the whole of the rest of the Bible story begins. Of course, you, you ask the question, how do we trace that opening verse in the beginning, God created heavens and earth through the story of the Old Testament? Perhaps, you know, it, it doesn't recur very often, but the idea that the Lord God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, the people of God, the idea that he is the creator God is in itself common. I mean, you, you read through the book of Psalms and they rejoice in God's creation. The whole creation praises the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God and so on. 
So the creation weaves its way through the scriptures of the Old Testament, not merely repeating that God created it all, but using that as a kind of almost axiom and assumption uh, about the whole of the rest of the story of the Bible. That the God who is the Savior of Israel, the God who we meet in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the creator God. And that, that's what provides us with our, our Christian worldview. It shows us who we are as human beings. It shows us what the world is, that it's loved and valued by God because it's good. It's his good creation. And it also shows us what our future is because God's plan ultimately, as Paul says uh, in Colossians, is that he has reconciled to himself all things in heaven and earth through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. So it's a creation by God's original creation. It's also the redeemed creation at the end of the story. So I felt really we had to we had to start there with that first verse, first first sentence of the Bible. Right, right, and what a great place to start. And then next, you turn to Abraham and how the Creator God, as you've highlighted, promises all people on earth will be blessed through you. How does God's partnership with Abraham influence the rest of the Old Testament? Well, I would say it influences the whole of the rest of the Bible, actually, because um, in many ways, God's promise to Abraham is like the kind of trigger that launches the whole of the rest of the Bible story right up to the book of Revelation. Um, I think it's quite important just to see, I mean, that that verse that I've quoted, um, through you, all nations and earth will be blessed, comes from Genesis chapter 12. It's part of God's promise to Abraham. It's actually Genesis 12, verse 3. And it is important to notice that Genesis 12 comes after Genesis 3 to 11. I mean, you don't need a PhD to notice that, but that's that's the case. Um, because Genesis 3 to 11 sets the question, doesn't it? It tells us that, you know, we chose to disobey God, to reject him, to rebel against him, uh, to choose for ourselves what we would decide was good and evil, and so on. And so we, we make this massive mess of the world, um, God's creation and ourselves, and so the big question at the end of Genesis 11 is, what on earth can God do next? Where can this story go? And uh, the answer to that, of course, is that God calls and chooses Abraham uh, and says not only will he bless him and make his name great, which is what the people at the Tower of Babel have been trying to do for themselves. And God says, no, that's not the way to do it. Uh, God says through this man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, I will create a nation and through them, the, the people of Old Testament Israel, God says, I will bring blessing to every nation on earth, which is an incredible universal promise. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. It, it does trace its way through the Old Testament. I mean, it comes in quite a number of the Psalms. People may not often notice this, but just, you know, read the Psalms and count how many times it talks about the whole earth, all the earth, all the peoples who live on the earth, all nations, and so on. Uh, the, the universality of, of God's vision for the nations is there in the Old Testament more often than we may notice because we're so preoccupied with the story of Israel, of course, because they're in the foreground. But the nations are always there. They're always there in the background. It's always God's plan and purpose to bring redemption and salvation and restoration to the nations of the world. And that's there then in the Psalms, as I say. It's also, of course, there in the prophets that we come to in a moment. And eventually it's what leads to the, the mission to the nations that we see in the New Testament. When, when Paul, the apostle, goes out to the Gentiles and people object and say, how come the Gentiles, can they can't become part of the God's people? Paul says, yes, of course, because that's what God promised Abraham. And, uh, and he uses the scriptures of Abraham, uh, both in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere, as the 
scriptural foundation for the mission of God and of the church to the nations. And of course, it still is. Every time the gospel mm. crosses cultures and goes to other nations, God is keeping his promise to Abraham. Yeah, that is yeah, that is an amazing way to put it. And I'm so glad that you traced that out here. Um, and so then you turn to chapter three, which covers the Exodus. And how does the sentence, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, kind of summarize the story of Israel and, and shape their concept of Yahweh? Well, that verse, of course, that you just quoted is from uh, Exodus chapter 20, the, the opening words of, of what we call the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Uh, I don't know if you've been to England, Jonathan, but one of the things you'll often find in some of our very ancient churches uh, in the churches of England, you'll find on the walls of a church uh, the words of the Ten Commandments, the words of the Lord's Prayer, and the words of the Apostles' Creed as a kind of summary of our faith. One of the things that often disappoints me is that the Ten Commandments begin, uh, you shall have no other gods beside me. And I want to sort of write above that, this is the law without the gospel, because uh, it's it needs to have the 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 preface, as it were, that what God says, first of all, is, I am the Lord your God, and here's what I've done. I brought you out of Egypt. I've redeemed you. So it's the story of redemption, the saving grace of God, when God brought the Israelites out from slavery from Egypt. That is the essential precursor of the giving of the law. And so I did want to make that point, because a lot of Christians have trouble with the law. Don't I mean, I don't mean they get in trouble with the law of the land, but they have trouble with Old Testament law. Um, because it seems they say, well, what has all this got to do with me? You know, we're not under law or under grace and all that kind of thing. And it can be very difficult to read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and wonder what's it all there for. And the answer is, of course, that God says, you have seen what I have done, he says to the Israelites when they get to Mount Sinai. I brought you out of Egypt. I've rescued you from slavery. That's the redeeming, saving love of God, his grace in action. And on the basis of what God has done for them, he says, now this is how I want you to live for me. So I then do discuss in the book a bit about the Ten Commandments and about how we can understand Old Testament law. But the essential theological point is that it's all based upon the saving grace of God and it's a response to grace. The Israelites were not told if you can obey God's law, maybe you can be saved and go to heaven when you die. No, they were told, look, God has already saved you. He has redeemed you out of slavery. Uh, this is how you can respond to him and live for him. So that chapter then deals with that issue, the question of, of Old Testament law, and fills in some of the you know the blanks, the gaps between the Genesis material and then the Exodus, and then on into the story of the wilderness and the tabernacle, and moving on into the rest of the history. But that, that's a very important foundation that uh, mm -hmm. God says, "This is who I am, and this is what I have done." Now then, how are you going to live in response to that? Right. And that was a very helpful distinction that you repeated is that the the law wasn't functioning to save the people. It was functioning as kind of the temperature gauge of their relationship with Yahweh. Um, and so you continue to trace the story of God's covenant relationship with his people by arriving at King David. So what importance do you draw from the sentence, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and, a and appointed him a ruler of his people. Yes, that's right. That's where we go to next, King David. Um, before just explaining that sentence, the, the rationale for that partly was that 
with Abraham, of course, there's the great covenant, the great promise that God made to Abraham. The, uh, it's, it's perhaps the major covenant of the whole Bible. And then when we got to the book of Exodus, of course, God renews that covenant at Sinai. So you have the Sinai covenant made through Moses with the people of Israel. And in a sense, the next major covenant in the Bible is God's covenant with David, uh, that he would make him king and also that his sons, the sons of David, would be kings over Israel um, in perpetuity, as it were, that it would always be a son of David who would rule over Israel. And that, of course, becomes very important when the New Testament considers the identity of Jesus. So that's, that's the reason why I skipped from the Exodus to King David, even though there's quite a lot of history in between. There's the story of the wilderness, the, uh, the conquest of the land, the time of the judges, and Samuel, and Saul, and so on. But David seems to be the next most significant moment. And then that phrase, the, the verse that I quoted, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him a ruler of his people. That, that phrase in English is easy to misunderstand because when you or I talk about you know somebody being, oh, he's a man after my own heart, what we usually mean by that expression in English is that this is somebody I really like. They think like me. They act like me. You know, it's my favorite sort of person. You're really my kind of guy, man after my own heart. It doesn't really have that flavor in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the heart is not so much the seat of emotions. It's the seat of the will. It's where you make your decisions and carry out your intentions. The, the heart is the core of, of human intentionality. So when God says that David is going to be a man after my heart, what he really means is he will be the person who will carry out my purposes. Not that David was God's favorite. In fact, David was a pretty big sinner a lot of the time, as we know. Uh, but he came back to God. He repented and he was forgiven. Uh, but here is the one through whom God will carry forward his purposes in a way that he had not been able to do through, through Saul. Uh, that's the meaning of that, um, that phrase. And so in that chapter, I then go on to discuss some of the, uh, the, the notion of kingship and how the monarchy originated in Israel uh, and some aspects of that covenant that God made with David and how that then echoes on through the Old Testament story and eventually, of course, lands in the New Testament with what the hymn says is great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus himself, who is, uh, we're reminded by, by Matthew in the opening verse of the New Testament, he's the son of Abraham and the son of David. And indeed, Paul makes his ancestry through David part of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. That he is the one who, to whom God promised that through this son of David, he would give him rule over all the nations on the earth. In him, the nations will put their hope, as he says at the end of Romans. Mm, right, excellent. Yeah, and then chapter 5 turns to the prophets from King David and you quote Micah 6, 8 as a sentence which illustrates God's message to his people of what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Who are the prophets and, and how do messages like this one help us understand their role in the Old Testament story? Yeah, we kind of need a little bit to step back here and, and remember that, yes, God called Abraham, made that great promise to him, redeemed Israel out of Egypt, um, told them that they would be the people through whom he was going to bring blessing into the world, took up his dwelling place among them in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So Israel in the Old Testament is going to be the people through whom God would bring blessing. They would be the vehicle of God's saving blessing to the world. But 
they were sinners like the rest of us. Israel is a, a, just as much a part of fallen humanity as everybody else. So sometimes when I'm asked the question, you know, why, why did God choose the Jews? Why did he choose the Israelites instead of like the Chinese or the Indians or the Irish or whoever else? The answer to that question is um, for no reason at all. There's nothing special about them which made God choose them. They were a sinful, stiff-necked bunch of people like the rest of humanity. Which means that although God gave them these great blessings and this enormous privilege of, of knowing him, that's one of the key distinctives of Israel, that they are the people who know the Lord and have the Lord dwelling among them in the temple, but nevertheless, they, they, they wander away from God. They, they go off into rebellion. They, they replicate the fall of humanity again and again. They rebel, they disobey, they break the covenant. And so when you ask the question, who are the prophets? The prophets are the people whom God sends to call Israel back to the way they're supposed to be going. The prophets remind the Israelites of their history. They remind the Israelites of the commitments that they made to live and obey God through the covenant. They remind Israel of the threats that God had made, that if they disobeyed, then they would suffer his punishment and so on. So the prophets are God's spokespersons, both men and women. Um, mostly men in terms of the ones we have recorded in the Bible, but there are w were women prophets as well, like Miriam and Huldah and Deborah and others. And so these prophets, they, they bring that message to the Israelites. And the reason why I chose that text out of Micah, uh, Micah 6 verse 8, which is a pretty famous verse, uh, that what the Lord really requires is that you do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God, is because the Israelites had got into this way of thinking that so long as they were worshipping God, or thought they were, so long as they had the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, that all would be well, that they would never suffer any loss, they would never be destroyed, the Jerusalem would always be safe. And so it produced an enormous sense of entitlement and complacency, uh, which the prophets had to pierce by saying, look, uh, precisely because you are the people of God, God expects better things. God expects obedience. He expects you to be a, a community of compassion and of justice. He expects that you will care for the poor and the needy and the foreigner and the immigrant. Uh, in fact, there's more laws about foreigners and immigrants than about any other topic in Old Testament law. There's about 20 to 30 specific laws relating to them. So something of the ethical challenge of God's law in the Torah is brought face to face with the people through the prophets. They say to the people, look, this mm. was how you were supposed to live. This is not the way you're living. And therefore, God's judgment is going to fall. So that's, that's the, the, the reason why in the Old Testament it is very important to take seriously the message that we receive through Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets uh, in that period. It's, it's a crucial message telling the people of God that salvation and redemption by itself is wonderful, but it calls for a response of obedience. They were called to obey the good news of their salvation in the covenant and not just, as it were, trade on it and then live whatever way they wanted. Mm, right. Yeah, that is an excellent point to make. Um, and speaking of Isaiah, then for the sixth sentence, you quote Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. So where does good news and its proclamation fit in with the story of the Old Testament and obviously the story of the New Testament as well? Yeah, well, of course, because what I wanted to show was that 
it would be easy to read big chunks of those books of the prophets that I've referred to, and you just get more and more depressed, don't you? I mean, it's all doom and gloom and judgment and curse and everything else. And it would be easy to say, oh, you know, the prophets, all they ever do is tell people off. Well, yes, they had to do that. What happened then, of course, was that God kept his threat. And in 587 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and besieged it and then eventually broke in and burnt it down, burnt the temple down, destroyed the city and carried the people off into exile in Babylon. It was the most traumatic event in the whole history of, of the Old Testament. That was God's judgment. God's judgment fell on the people on that generation and it left them with a tiny fragment, a tiny remnant of the survivors of that event who went off to Babylon. And so to all human intents and purposes, that should have been the end of Israel. I mean, it was the end of little countries like Moab and Edom and all those little ones. They all just got swallowed up and disappeared. So how come that the people of Israel survived? And the answer is, of course, that God still had a plan. God was still going to keep his promise to Abraham. God was still going to bring blessing to all the nations on earth through these people. And so on the other side of judgment, also in the prophets, you have this message of hope, hope for the future, hope of restoration. And that's what I wanted to bring out, that uh, in places like Isaiah 40 to 55 and, and beyond, and uh, also some parts of Ezekiel and certainly in Jeremiah and elsewhere, you have these great words in which God says, I'm going to restore you. I will take you back. There will be a restoration uh, and my plan and purpose will continue. The reason why this can be called good news is precisely because that's what they call it. Uh, we talk about gospel. And as you know, in the New Testament, the word gospel is good news. It's the, in, in Greek, it's the word euangelizomai, uh, from which we get evangel and evangelization and evangelical. All those words come from this Greek word. And it's that Greek word which translates precisely the Hebrew words of proclaiming good news. For example, Psalm 96, proclaim among the nations that the Lord reigns. The word there is this one, proclaim good news. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful in the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. It, it's a gospel word. Uh, so that's why I'm not at all afraid to use the language of gospel in Old Testament terms, because this was the good news that God preached, God gave to them, and which the New Testament then sees um, comes ultimately fulfillment when Jesus of Nazareth comes onto the streets of Galilee and says, hey guys, the time is fulfilled. What you thought was only going to be in the future is now here. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe what? Believe the good news. Believe the gospel that God's kingdom is now arriving. So that's what that chapter is all about. It's trying to help us to see that what the New Testament talks about as gospel is, in fact, um, both Old Testament language and was prophesied and foretold in the Old Testament, so much so that in Galatians, the Apostle Paul can actually say that the scriptures preached the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying, through you all nations will be blessed. So Paul says that the gospel doesn't begin in Matthew. The gospel begins in Genesis. It's the whole future part, the future-looking direction of the Old Testament story, which leads us to Christ, and then ultimately leads us to the cross and resurrection and to the good news being preached to the nations. Mm. Right. Excellent. So then you end the book with a final chapter on Psalms and wisdom literature and using Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my shepherd. 
you overview the content and role of the writings in the Hebrew Bible. So what part do the Psalms and wisdom literature play in the story of God's people? Well, I felt that I couldn't leave this out because, of course, it is a very important part of the Old Testament scriptures. Indeed, perhaps the book of Psalms is one of the few parts of the Old Testament that some Christians would regularly read. Of course, in, in the what we now call the Old Testament, uh, it, it breaks up into we have the law and then the history books and then some and then the books of poetry like the Psalms and Proverbs and then the books of the prophets. In the Hebrew canon, which Jesus knew and the Apostle Paul would have had, the Hebrew way the books were organized was the law, the prophets and the writings or the Torah, the prophets and the writings. And the prophets included what we now call the history books because they were history written from a prophetic point of view. And then the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the book of the 12 minor prophets. And then they had what they simply called the writings. And that includes, yeah, the Psalms of worship and praise and everything else. And then the books of wisdom, meaning uh, books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. So I almost wished I'd had eight sentences because then I could have done the Psalms on their own and wisdom on their own. But I only got seven. So I, I put them together. It is an important part of the scripture for several reasons. First, because in the book of Psalms, almost every dimension of Israel's life and indeed of the life of any believer, Jewish or Christian, is given expression there in in worship. Uh, I mean, we think of the Psalms, well, the actual word for the Psalms in Hebrew is the praises. And there's a great deal of praise, thanksgiving to God, honoring God, worshiping God. But among the praises, the largest single category of psalms is actually the psalms of lament, the psalms of protest and saying to God, look, God, this is terrible. I'm suffering badly. You're doing nothing. Everybody hates me. And how long is this going to go on for? And and those kind of psalms, you know, there are, there are dozens of them right there. And that's a part of the part of the word of God, part of the revelation of scripture that I think a lot of contemporary Christians ignore. Because we, we want to think that everything's got to be happy, you know, you've got to be all set, you've got to be fixed up, and if there's anything wrong, um, then somehow either you're lacking in faith or something's gone wrong. We miss out this fact that God has given us in the book of Psalms uh, an incredible vocabulary by which to express our pain and our suffering and our anger and our frustration, as well as our joy and our hope and our praise and thanks. So, think it's quite important that we take the psalm seriously as the, I was going to say the background music. It is not really background music. It is uh, the music of worship. It is the music of faith. And it's also the music of mission, because often the psalms talk about how the faith that Israel has in their Lord God, the Savior and Redeemer of Israel, is the faith that is going to ultimately go to all the nations. I mean, there are incredible verses in the Psalms, like when Psalm 86 says, all the nations you have made will come to praise you, O Lord. But how do they ever imagine that? You know, I sometimes think of an Israelite worshipper standing there in the temple courts in Jerusalem singing, all the nations you have made will come to... What was going through their head? You know, what were they imagining? Uh, well, they, they couldn't have. And yet, even for us, it's hard to imagine. And yet, of course, it's what John says that he saw in his great vision in, in Revelation 5. He said, saw people from every nation, language and tribe gathered before the throne of God. So there's a wonderful universality about the Psalms. Then the wisdom literature, yes, um, it, 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 it's more a kind of 
arm round the shoulder sort of words in which a, a father says to his son, now look, son, I know the law says thou shalt not commit adultery, but think about it. Think of the consequences. Uh, look to the results of what you do and, and behave with prudence and sense and be sensible. So there's a great deal in the book of Proverbs, which is the wisdom of experience and of life and how when life is lived in a way that is godly and righteous, that will also be wise and sensible. So there's a connection between wisdom and, uh, and godliness. But then along comes books like Ecclesiastes and Job, and they say, yeah, well, uh, we see that it's better to be wise than to be foolish, and we can see that it's better to be godly than to be wicked, but does it make any difference when you're dead? <laughs> and, and, and so they, they really rub our noses in, in the reality of suffering and death uh, and say, how do we square the world that we believe in, the world of our faith, the, the truths that the scriptures teach us, with the world that we actually see, the world of experience, in which so much seems just absurd or unfair. And so they wrestle with those issues. And I think that's also very important, that God has put into his scriptures books which allow us to think and to question and to wrestle with big issues. And it doesn't say, oh, you must never ask questions, you must always do. No, it says you can ask these questions. You, you won't always get a very clear answer. But you can ask the questions in faith and under God and with God, because the fear of the Lord is always going to be the beginning of wisdom, beginning and end. But the questions can be there, and Ecclesiastes and Job wrestle with those questions. And, and so we can pay attention to that as well, and to the depth and profundity of, of the, the way in which they deal with them. So, yeah, I felt I needed to look at the Psalms and the wisdom literature, because they are important, not only an important part of the Old Testament scripture, but they were massively influential on Jesus. I mean, you look at the teaching of Jesus and his parables, uh, and they are redolent with um, thinking from the Psalms and from the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. So there's a great deal of the scriptures in the mind and heart of Jesus himself. Right. Yeah, and I, I think it's so important and very helpful, um, which honestly is a theme throughout this whole book. And uh, I just so appreciate the work that you put into this, I feel like you have just a unique ability to connect the story of scripture that as you read, you really, I felt that I loved the Bible and loved God more, you know, um, from seeing all these things connected and put together. So thank you for that. Um, before we conclude, would you mind um, just sharing with us what you're working on next? Well, I just completed a, a commentary on the book of Exodus. Um, this will be with Zondervan. Um, and it's uh, which in, in a new series that they're in the process of bringing out called the Story of God Bible Commentary, which is very appropriate. The idea is that we look at each of the books of the Bible and each passage within those books in the light of the overarching mission of God as we see through the whole Bible story leading up to Christ and then beyond Christ into the mission of the church. So, yeah, I that that was about three years of work with on Exodus. Um, I'm not sure exactly when it will be published, perhaps sometime next year. It just depends on the on, on how the editors handle that. So that, mm. um, that's been accompanying me and I for some time. Right. Wow. Well, thank you so much for donating your time. Um, I really appreciate it. And you have been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read.